This is Brasenose College, Oxford. I was an undergraduate here from 1962 to 1965. When I was at Oxford, I met an awful lot of people in this room. Many of them with a sense of humour. Some of them even turned up later in a very silly television series called Monty Python's Flying Circus. It's over 40 years ago that we first plotted comedy here. An age ago, when the sun always shone and it never rained. Oxford's problem, I think, is it's almost too beautiful. And you come here and you look at the dreaming spires and you see all those gorgeous young things in their pants in the river. And what you don't notice, unless you begin to look at it, is all the real work that's going on here. And if you ask those young people in the pants what they're doing... Physics. French and Czech. Masters in public health. Masters in law. Physics. Classics and modern languages. Masters in ancient history. Experimental psychology. Fergiomatic, preclinical. English language and literature. And so the beauty of Oxford tends to give the impression that no one does anything here. But in fact, a huge amount goes on. 20,000 bicycles, off to labs and lecture rooms, tutorials and training. There's much to do, exams to pass, dreams to fulfil. 25 Prime Ministers came from this place, 47 Nobel Prize winners, at least 20 Archbishops of Canterbury, 12 Saints and one Mayor of London. Oxford pulsates with energy and drive. I hate to become a paediatrician. My intention is to become a barrister and then maybe after that even a high court judge. Going into the world of finance or going into the world of medicine. I hope to go into broadcast and print journalism. I'm thinking about hopefully going into the public sector or charities or NGOs. Travel and uh, also preferably bossing other people around. As I revisit this beautiful city, it all comes back. The weekly tutorial and I'm face to face with my tutor, a formidable scholar, this is the moment of truth. Bluffing is out of the question. Well, I've been looking at the idea of the transvestite in Shakespeare. Uh -huh. And in looking at that, I've been looking at um, Twelfth Night um, and Venus and Adonis particularly. I mean, the tutorial system's great. I mean, you come into your tutorial, your tutor asks you something about the reading, something about the question, something about the world, and you have to answer. You're the one sitting there. You know, you can't jump behind the sofa and hide and ask the tutor to ask the light shade. You have to answer. And what that does is it teaches you that it's not good enough to do the job, you've got to excel. Most undergraduates at Oxford belong to one of 38 colleges. The colleges are great. Um, I think they provide homes for students and, and fellows and faculty in, in, a, in a big university, but you're part of a small college and so you have a base. And what is wonderful about the colleges, they mix everyone up. So the thing that's fantastic about Oxford is the absence of silos, the fact that you can work right across the disciplines as your research interests dictate. Where else but in Oxford could a professor of engineering and a professor of ancient history make sense of a hoard of wooden tablets from Roman times discovered in a rubbish tip near Hadrian's Wall? When all the world's top universities are trying to globalise, Oxford's already there. And it, it's playing this incredibly important role for the whole world. You know, not just as a centre of research excellence, but as one of the very few centres outside of the United States that can be among the top two or three players. Oxford's got a global mission. 
At the core of Oxford's medical programme are the research labs at Headington. From here, the long arm of Oxford reaches out into Africa and Southeast Asia as scientists and researchers grapple with the diseases that plague mankind. For the billion poorest people in the world, the three major causes of death are all infectious diseases. HIV, malaria, and tuberculosis are the major killers. And we have a very powerful vaccine program which is currently developing new vaccines, novel vaccines, for all three of those major infectious diseases. In Africa, uh, a scientist by the name of Kevin Marsh has been there for more than 20 years, developing a whole range of new interventions and studying, again, the major infectious diseases in that environment. But it looks uh, a bit better than the last time I saw him. Yes, it uh, looks better, but that's because the abnormal movements are... Sure, sure, sure. Well, I think Oxford's contribution to international health research has just been extraordinary in terms of its length of commitment and its breadth and depth of commitment. Um, we talked earlier about the fact that people are very long-term involved in national institutes, but within Oxford itself, the, simple, the breadth of basic science research across the major international diseases like HIV, TB, malaria is simply outstanding. Oxford's astrophysicists travel the world, scanning the cosmos through powerful telescopes, asking some basic questions. What we all want to know is whether there are worlds out there like our own. We believe very much that there are. We've detected hundreds of planets around stars already, and the quest to find a planet like the Earth is now on. At the university's botanic gardens, director Timothy Walker is on plant watch. Biology is his passion, and keeping every endangered plant alive and well is an article of faith. We are probably going to need to look for some new food plants, for example, in the future as, as the world's climate changes. And we only use a handful of species of plant at the moment. And so looking after all plants means that our children and grandchildren are going to have much better choices in the future of what to grow and what to survive, what they're going to need to survive. The engine room of Oxford, the dynamo that generates investment and research grants, are the labs that house the chemists. In terms of the energy crisis, Oxford Chemistry is working on replacements for carbon-based fuels, fossil fuels, that are completely um, uh, non-polluting. If you could turn nitrogen that is naturally uh, the major constituent of air and add hydrogen to that to make a compound called ammonia, and then you burn the ammonia, all you get back is water and nitrogen gas that goes back into the air where it came from. That would be completely non-polluting. We are working very hard on this problem. My research group uh, is actively looking at this and making great progress. It will come.
Adam Bumpus is number four in the Lineker 8. If he catches the 8 in front, it's called a bump, and his boat moves up a place in the division. This is a very traditional Oxford thing, and something that's very new in Oxford is, is a move towards a study of more environmental issues that are happening around the world. And this is what I work on in the Environmental Change Institute at Oxford, which is on climate change. And I work on carbon offsets that are happening in Honduras. And what we see is that the change in towards focus on environmental issues is something which Oxford, even as a traditional institution, can really make a big difference in because of the expertise we have in here. Sport in Oxford is all about offering as many different sports as possible to as many different students as possible. And we have over 80 sports here at Oxford, with a figure growing every year. Oxford University's main sporting event doesn't even take place in Oxford anymore. It began as a larky idea dreamt up by two pals from Harrow when George IV was king and the Duke of Wellington was Prime Minister. Now it's called the Boat Race. It's rowed in London before a worldwide audience of 120 million, and you don't have to have been to Oxford or Cambridge to take sides. is a musical city, choirs attached to Magdalen, New College and here in Christchurch are guardians of a centuries-old choral tradition, treasures to be cherished. This is performance art, as performed by the students of the Ruskin School of Art. To put it mildly, it's probably a bit ahead of its time. We're the art school of the university. We are a contemporary art school aiming at the cutting edge of the fine art world. Our students are enormously ambitious. They make work of many different kinds, from drawing to performance, sound works, installation, uh, photography, film. It's their ambition to be international artists at the cutting edge. Oxford's museums are among the places where the public and the university meet. The Ashmolean is the oldest museum in Britain. Another great favourite is the university's Natural History Museum. It has all sorts of uses. Today, 50 state school pupils arrive at the museum. That is so cool. They've come to experience Oxford. Perhaps they'll begin to see the university in a new light. Some might decide to apply. The last, the last letter, the three-day visit is built around a murder mystery, which they must solve. The clues to the killer's identity 
are all around. Later, they attend a formal dinner at Pembroke College, where more foul play is on the menu. At high table, the murderer will strike again. The intended victim is Professor Lawrence Fishbone. On a deeper level, I hope that university isn't such a foreign concept to them anymore. For a lot of them, they're the first generation in their family to come to university or to think of coming to university. So there's no older brother or sister, no mum or dad to say, what was it like? What was it really like? They'll have stayed in a student bedroom. A lot of them will have travelled independently here on the train. Just little things like that really go a long way to easing the, uh, easing the decision-making process later on whenever they come to decide whether or not university is for them. Professor Fishbone enjoys his supper, unaware that it is to be his last. One of these profiteroles is poisoned. It is destined for the plate of the doomed professor. What did the teenagers make of Oxford? The murder mystery thing's been like really clever how they've done it and stuff. It's been really fun. Yeah. I definitely think I want to come here when I leave school because it's very nice. It's really like down to earth place. You get a really good experience from coming here and it actually helps your decision of if you want to go to university or not. Oh, definitely. Uh, see if I can apply for it, see what courses they run. Yeah, it would like make people want to come here because it would be quite enjoyable to come here. I do really want to come here now. I thought it was really hard to go in, but it's not that hard. I was a bit sceptical about maybe coming to university after I've left school, but now that I've seen what university life is actually like, it's, it seems that it's a really good idea. Sometimes young people look at Oxford and they see the Dreaming Spires and they think, I couldn't possibly aspire to that. And that's such a shame. Because Oxford is a huge mix of people of different social classes, people, people from all over the world. My message to them, if I, if I could ever get a chance to speak to them, is go for it. Think of it. Do it. They're going to be bursaries, and you will have a wonderful time. It's just such a wonderful place. Um, met lots of people, and I uh, just really enjoyed my time here so far. Oh, I love it. I absolutely adore it. I know that anybody who comes to visit here absolutely like thinks it's the most beautiful thing. So. Fantastic. It's, uh, it's my sixth year here. I'm really regretting leaving it. It's an absolutely wonderful place. It's everything I thought it would be. I love it. I love waking up in the morning and being around the old buildings and going to the old libraries. It's a great way of life. I'm from the north, I'm from Manchester, um, and I was a bit scared um, when I came down, um, but I've actually really enjoyed my time here. I've loved it, I've made so many friends. It's really down to earth. Literally a stone's throw from my old college is the Radcliffe Camera, part of the wonderful Bodleian Library. The Bodleian is a copyright library and has the right to claim a copy of every book published in Britain between two to three thousand volumes. This is just one week's delivery of new books. More precious space to be found in a library that already holds nine million items on 120 miles of shelving. 
In a complex operation, books go off to readers and researchers in the Bodleian's 29 reading rooms. Some are sent on an underground journey. So scarce is space that books are stored as far afield as a disused mine in Cheshire. But the bulk of the collection remains where demand is greatest, in Oxford. This is Duke Humphrey's library. Professor David Wormersley has ordered up some original editions of Gulliver's Travels. He's introducing two of his students to variations in Swift's original text. That Swift thinks that Mott, when he printed the 1726 Gulliver, uh, cut out bits that he thought were dangerous. Mm. Now, the variant that we're going to look at is interesting because, in fact, it's something that's included in 1726 but not present in 1735. And it's this strange moment when Pedro de Mendes, the Portuguese sea captain... Sir Thomas Bodley founded the library in the early 1600s as a resource for the whole republic of the learned. That resource is immense and priceless. This is the Magna Carta. It's one of four owned by the Bodleian Library that have been entrusted to us for over three centuries. It's an iconic document in Western civilization because it defines the liberty of individuals and curtails the power of kings. Is there a publishing house in the world with a grander frontage than that of Oxford University Press? A fitting reminder that this is an institution of gravitas, a major player for 500 years and the world's most productive university publishing house by far. Oxford University Press, we've got fantastic global range and reach. We publish in a vast range of subjects from the classics through to indigenous language schemes in countries like South Africa. We employ 5,000 staff in more than 51 countries around the world. And as a department of the university, we're very synced up with the university's mission, the dissemination of scholarship and education worldwide. And internationally, many people's first experience of learning the English language will have been from one of our books, such as the Oxford Advanced Learner's Dictionary, which sells a copy every minute and a half worldwide. Leaving aside the ever-expanding growth of electronic books and journals, these are just some of the titles published by Oxford University Press. It's said that getting on for a half of British children learn how to read from the university's reading schemes. But the jewel in the crown is the Oxford English Dictionary. This is the touchstone of the English language worldwide. The editor of the OED is hard at it, checking and validating the weekly explosion of words that pass across his desk. Slang, Americanisms, Technobabble, all clamouring for recognition in the ever-changing, morphing English language. Well, at the moment I'm working on subprime, which was a very important word in the banking financial sector from the 1970s onwards, but it's only just come into um, uh, national, international public notice um, through the um, uh, credit crunch. Subprime is defined, its pedigree authenticated. At the click of a mouse, it becomes a part of the Oxford English Dictionary, some would say 
of the English language itself. John Simpson and his team give the imprimatur to about four new entries a day into the OED. Across the rooftops from OUP is the back door to another Oxford landmark, a site for which the university has plans. This was once the Radcliffe Infirmary. One day, this site will be reborn. This is going to be our new humanities building. After 800 years, finally, we will all be together under the same roof. English, history, philosophy, modern languages, linguistics, theology, music, fine art and oriental studies. The new buildings on the city's edge are a world away from the dreaming spires, but they're the present and the future. The new world-class supercomputer centre is every researcher's dream. Here's an awesome fact, quote, the power of these machines is equal to each of the 6.6 .6 billion people on the planet doing more than 1,500 calculations per second. Almost unbelievable. In North Oxford, the university's orator is preparing an oration in classical Latin in honour of Mr Roger Bowler for a lifetime service in the Department of Physical Chemistry. To do this, he must consult a dictionary of Latin modernisms published by the Vatican. In fact, people seem to enjoy the Latin. Graduates, for example, are hearing the same words and receiving their degrees in exactly the same form as their predecessors for many centuries. And continuity is one of the things that a university is about. Throughout the year, degrees are bestowed, as often as not, in Christopher Wren's Sheldonian Theatre. Streams of undergraduates, graduates, postgraduates and doctors are honoured by the Vice-Chancellor or his deputies. She's worked ever so hard. It's just nice to be here. It's just a great day. Very proud. Very proud parents. We're very proud indeed of our granddaughter. Why is that? <laughs> because she's done so well to come to Oxford and to get a very good degree. It's a happy day for me and for him for all his Mason sacrifice. As well. For the past four years I've been wanting to wear this and I'm wearing it today. I mean, the main thing about it as well is Paul went to the, a normal primary school, he went to a normal comprehensive school, and for him to end up in Oxford is just magnificent, so... The Oxford I knew 40 years ago has changed, but I'm reassured that it still seems the most natural thing on earth for a boys' choir to climb to the top of a steep tower at six in the morning every May Day to welcome in the summer. Long live Madrigals at Magdalene. Oxford was a breath of fresh air for me, bringing new friends, new ideas, new opportunities. And by the time I left Oxford, the future pattern of my life was already laid down. 